Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We'll see a lot of people who aren't here and a lot of people who are new here. So that's kind of neat to see some of you from out of town. So welcome back to sunny California. Well, Christmas is full of memories and some of the most enjoyable memories are those unexpected surprises that you have on Christmas morning. Sometimes they're presents when you're a child. And like I said earlier, you, know, you open up that one. And I can remember a gift I got as a child. I really hoped my family, my parents would get it for me. And, and they did. I can remember one morning waking up and finding out everybody in my family was sick with the flu. And my brother... Uh, was laying in, on the floor, and my sister threw up in his face. So, you, you know, you have those memories of Christmas, and so we could all probably go around here and talk about Christmas memories, and most of them revolve around some kind of unexpected thing that happened on Christmas, Christmas morning or Christmas Eve. But actually, what's interesting about the Christmas story, the true Christmas story found in the Scriptures, is that it's full of unexpected surprises. It's full of people who are who face really uncertainty. They didn't know something was going to happen. And yet it did. And last week, well, actually two weeks ago, we started studying really the contrast between people who face uncertainty and respond in fear and those people who face uncertainty and respond in faith. We started in Isaiah chapter 7 two weeks ago. And so just do a quick overview for those who weren't, here the past two weeks, we saw King Ahaz, who was of, of the house of David. He was a king in Judah there. And the northern uh, kings wanted to come against him, actually dethrone him, kill him, kill, kill off the house of David and replace with another king there. God promised through Isaiah that would not happen. In fact, he promised the house of David that they, he would keep his promise to David. And he gave a sign. The sign was... That the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And that was a sign to the house of David that the line of David would continue on and would end with one who would actually continue it on eternally because he would be the eternal God. But Ahaz chose to fear and didn't choose to trust the Lord. And so 700 years pass, and that signed to David did not come to pass until Jesus was born. We talked about Matthew chapter 1, how, how Jesus came from the line of David. There was a girl named Mary who was of that Davidic kingly line, and she had a supernatural conception of the Holy Spirit. An angel came to Joseph, whom, to whom she was betrothed, and said to believe, to believe her, and to believe that this baby was not just supernaturally born, but actually was the savior of the world. And so Joseph trusted the Lord's promise and the prophecy, and he did what the Lord commanded him. And so this week, we're going to see a contrast again in Matthew chapter 2. And here we see another king of Israel, and it's King Herod. But King Herod, he's an, kind of an illegitimate king in some sense. He's not even really Jewish. He's Gentile. He's an Edomite. And here King Herod is contrasted with Jesus, the, the true Messiah from the line 
of David. You have another contrast here. You have the chief priests that consult King Herod. The chief priests were the ones who should have recognized the true Messiah, who should have anointed the true Messiah. And then you have these Gentile priests who come from the east. We know them as wise men or magi. And they actually recognize Jesus as the true Messiah, King of Israel. So these contrasts are taking place in this passage. And what we're going to see is with one group of people, again, you see this heart of fear when they face uncertainty. And then also you see another group that has a heart of faith that turns and delights in worship to the Lord. And so you have a handout in your bulletin, or you can just look on the screen and write these two contrasts down. The heart of fear schemes and self-worship and the heart of faith delights in Christ's worship. And we're in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. Would you look at that scripture as I read it aloud? Matthew 2, 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea and Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Father, as we open up your word, we ask that you will give us grace to see the scriptures as really Mary did when she heard it from that angel. And she listened to the word, she believed the word, and she obeyed you. And so, God, may we we have that heart here this morning, a heart of faith, heart that trusts you in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Matthew chapter 2 really starts off where Luke 2.38 ends. We didn't read through the whole chapter there in Luke chapter 2 in our scripture reading, but Luke 2, or Matthew 2 starts when Mary and Joseph uh, are in Bethlehem. Jesus has already been born. The shepherds have already heard of Messiah's birth from the angels. They saw The sign, if you remember the shepherds, they went out and they began to tell people what was happening, what they witnessed. And the Bible says all who heard it wondered what the shepherds had had heard. And then by this time already there was a 
kind of a hubbub there in Bethlehem and also in somewhat of Jerusalem. Because you remember that Mary and Joseph went to the temple and they, they went to dedicate Jesus on the eighth day of his, after his birth. If you remember in Luke chapter 2, there Simeon held up Jesus and announced in the temple that this was the baby who was the Messiah King and also the prophetess Anna announced this too. So, and then evidently at some point they went back to Bethlehem and then began to live there for some period of time. And so and we don't know exactly how old Jesus is here in Matthew chapter 2. Some people say he was, you know, uh, three months old. Some people say he was a year old, probably somewhere between three months to a year old there. But the, but the point is, what we, where we leave off, or where we pick up here in Matthew chapter 2, is, is they are now living in Bethlehem, and there has been some stir. I mean, some people have heard that he's here, and this is a, something special has taken place. You can see that in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, the Bible says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, something else happens. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And here in this verse, we're introduced to Herod, who was an illegitimate king of Israel, to, to baby Jesus, who's the true Messiah king, and to the Magi, who sometimes we call the wise men. So I'm just going to talk through a couple of these, these individuals that we see here in groups here. So, so first of all, who was, who was Herod? the uh, Herod here in this passage. Well, we call him Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was a king of, let's see if I can give a picture of there. There you go. He was a king of, of, of Israel at the time. And he was under the rule of Rome. And again, like I said earlier, he was a Gentile. So people didn't view him as legitimate, although he had the power and ruled that way. He was very paranoid. He actually became the king about 40 years before Jesus uh, was born into this world. And at the time of, of at, before that time, this part of the world, that is Syria and modern-day Syria and modern-day Israel and Jordan, was actually under the Parthian Empire. And so you had the Roman Empire, had, who had, what, which had come to power, was growing in strength, and the Parthian Empire, which was crumbling. So I'll show you a little map up here, and you can see that right there. And there's the arrow that points to where Jesus was where Jerusalem and Bethlehem were right there. And so for three years, Herod, under the authority of Rome, came and fought, fought the Parthians there in, um, in Palestine. And he actually was able, for three years, uh, went through a battle and was able to conquer it for Rome. And when he did that, the Caesar said that he could rule Israel as their king. And so he set himself up under the rule of Rome to be able to be the king of Israel and to kind of give him legitimacy. He uh, married a Jewish girl. Then he killed off her brother. Then he killed her off. Then he killed off his mother-in-law. And then he killed off two of his sons. So basically, he wasn't really well liked by the people there. And I don't know why. No, you can obviously imagine why people didn't like him. And, and, and he was paranoid that people were out to kill him. I wonder why. And so every, and everything for him was, was maybe, was, was a possibility that someone was trying to, to kick him off the throne and delegitimize him as the king. So, so imagine the shock here when a group of magi from the Parthian Empire arrive in Jerusalem. And they march into Jerusalem and they say, where's the one born king of the Jews? 
Imagine the threat that was to Herod. Look at verse 1. The end of verse 1 says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, who are these wise men here? Well, the, the word for wise men is actually one word in the Greek, and it's magos. And we transliterate it sometimes as magi, which is probably a better way to translate it, just because it actually represents a priestly group of, of people from the Medes. These were people who lived in the Parthian Empire. They were advisors to the kings of the East. They were also the ones who approved and, and crowned the kings of the East. They existed through the Babylonian Empire the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and were still present during the, the large Roman Empire at this time, and were still living in the Parthian Empire. So these, these guys, they spanned many different centuries there, and they found their wisdom in astronomy, astrology, and magic, and other sacred books. They believed the affairs of history were reflected in the movement of the stars, so they looked at the stars and all these other things to to see the, the, these powers and these higher phenomena, to give direction in the history of, of, of the world and of their, their societies. And so the question, as we look at this text here, the question is, how did these magi know to look for a Jewish king in Jerusalem? Like, how did they know to come in and search for him in this place? Well, the text gives us a number of facts that they believed. And so let's look through a couple of those. First of all, they believed he was a king. Secondly, they believed he was Jewish. Third, they believed that he was born. And then they also believed that he was some kind of deity, right? Because they actually come and they worship him. Now, as you look at this text, you say, well, how do they know all that stuff? Well, this, this text doesn't tell us here. We're not going to be able to look at Matthew chapter 2 and get that answer. You actually need to go back to the Old Testament. And I would say this is that we can... We can discern from the Old Testament how we think they came up with that. There's nowhere where the Bible says this is exactly how they came to that conclusion. But we can actually look back at the book of Daniel. We can see that Daniel was one who actually oversaw at one point in history, 600 years before Jesus Christ. He actually oversaw this priestly group of Magi. Remember Daniel? He grew up in Jerusalem. He was trained in the Old Testament scriptures, but then he was kidnapped by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now I'm going through a little bit of history here, but stay with me. He was kidnapped. He was taken to Babylon, which if you look back at our map here, you can see there Babylon is right, right down there on the map. And so he was taken to this place by King Nebuchadnezzar. And he actually was able by the power of God to interpret dreams. And so he was put over all of this, this entire priestly group of the Magi. And then God spoke to him and actually not just helped him understand the prophecies of the Old Testament. God actually gave him new prophecies in Daniel chapter 9. In fact, if you go to my message from last Christmas, you can listen to this. Daniel 9, 24 through 27. God gives Daniel a timeline of when the Messiah was going to be born. So, so what you see here is, is that there's a group of magi who actually 600 years before that had passed down to them from Daniel that there was a Messiah who was going to be born. It's prophesied in the Old Testament. Daniel was actually told a timeline. So, I mean, what do you think Daniel passed on to these men? In fact, actually, what's interesting is up until uh, World War II, 
you might not realize this, but um, Iraq and Iran, modern-day Iraq and Iran, was actually filled with Jewish people. In Iraq, there was 150,000 Jews living in Baghdad. In Iran, there were 100,000 Jews living in Iran. So my point is, through the centuries, there's, there's been these group of Jewish people, these communities that have still stayed there, and now many of them are gone because of war, for about 100 uh, after World War II that took place. But think about this. At the time of Christ, there was these huge Jewish communities. There were synagogues. What do you find in synagogues? Old Testament scriptures. You have Daniel who passed down prophecies. And you have this, this group that, that probably was the group that retained a lot of that. And then evidently they were looking for this Jewish Messiah to come. And I think we can infer from all that that these magi were influenced by Daniel and the Old Testament scriptures to to look for a coming Messiah. Now, you, the question comes down to what text did they look at? Like, what was it? And there's, well, I would say this, there's 300 prophecies, over 300 prophecies that Jesus Christ was the Messiah that he fulfilled. So Daniel probably could have had a list of a lot of prophecies that they were to look for. But one that's very interesting is actually Numbers chapter number 24, verse 17. It's interesting because this is a prophecy by Balaam who was actually from the town of Pethor on the Euphrates River in the Parthian Empire. In some sense, you might say this one. This is a prophet from their own land. And this is what he says. He says, I see him, talking about the Messiah, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. So Numbers chapter 24, verse 17 says that the Messiah will be like a star out of of Jacob, out of Israel, and he will be a king. And so then look back down to Matthew chapter 2, or chapter 2 and verse 2, and and listen to what these guys say. Verse 2, the Bible says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These men evidently placed their faith and and again some type of revelation from God. Likely it came from the Old Testament scriptures and from Daniel as he passed it on, but also it came from a sign that God gave them of a light in the sky. And they used these things to look to God in faith and pursue the Messiah. However, in the midst of of uncertainty in Jerusalem. You think about these guys coming into Jerusalem and the fear that Herod had. Herod and the people of Jerusalem were afraid. Look down in in verse number three. The Bible says, And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Just think of the uncertainty that Herod faced at this time. Who are these people? What are their intentions? Who is this possible king? When when our hearts are filled with fear, like King Herod, and and eventually we'll see the Jewish leaders, we scheme in self-worship. Imagine the tension, uncertainty as these magi come into town. Herod, Herod had fought to be the Jewish king. He went through battles. He was still battling, actually, in some sense. Herod had schemed his whole life to get what 
he wanted. And what, was, what did he want? He wanted power. He wanted position. He wanted control. And he got it by any means possible. And when it came, when something came against him, his heart would fill with fear that he would lose it. He would lose what he wanted. So what does he respond? How does he respond? He responded in deception. He responded in strife and in anger. And we're going to see later on, he actually responded by killing all these infants in, in, Jeru- in Bethlehem of two years, two years of age and younger. So here's a man who just responds in, in sin. So he has fear because of uncertainty. And what that, that fear and what that sin revealed was what he truly worshipped. And what was it? What was it that this king of Israel worshipped? And it was himself. It was himself. And, and the fear, when your heart is filled with fear and, and you scheme and you deceive and you work to get your way and you move everything around in a, in a sinful way, it reveals what you value most. And what is it that you value most in that situation? Yourself, which then reveals what you worship, and that is yourself. An evil King Herod was a wicked man. And we can look at him and say, oh, what a terrible guy he was. But you know the truth is, we're a lot like Herod, aren't we? When I was studying this, I thought through, man, how, how am I like this guy? I'm not killing babies, right? I'm not doing anything mean like this, but how am I like, I believe that sometimes we can face circumstances that are out of our control. And we don't like being out of control, do we? We want to be in control, but we can be afraid that we're going to lose something we really want. So we'll scheme and we'll work and we'll sin, which actually reveals that we are worshipers of ourselves. We're trying to protect that which we love most, and that is us. And it shows that self is really ruling our hearts. I was thinking through some examples, like what would this look like in, in the, the life of a person? I, a lot of times on Fridays, we'll go to Starbucks or another coffee shop, and I'll just sit there and I'll kind of look around at different people in the room and just start thinking to myself, I don't know who they are, but I think, okay, how, how would this apply to people like this? And I thought, I was thinking about a child who, who goes into the kitchen and there's a snack there and they know they're not supposed to have the snack. So they're afraid to eat the snack and their mom to see the snack. And so there's a fear that their mom will will find out that they are going to have the snack. And so they sneak it. They deceive by eating it in the corner. They have the crumbs in their mouth and they walk out. And of course, mom's smarter than they think she is. But there's a child who fears and schemes with sin. And why is that? Because the most important person to that child is self they're a worshiper of themselves and their fear and their scheming show that really self is the king of their hearts and sits on the throne of their hearts i was thinking about a young person who who wants people to like them maybe a young lady who wants wants people to like her and she's afraid that she'll she'll lose the acceptance of people around her right so she wants to scheme she'll maybe talk bad about these girls so she looks better maybe she lies and says things that aren't true about herself to make herself look better and so she has this fear and so she schemes and she sins and why is that because in the end of the day she's trying to protect what she loves the most and that is what and that's herself or i think about the spouse who who uh likes to buy things in cash so the other spouse doesn't know about it 
who likes to hide some of their finances because they're afraid the other spouse might be upset with their choices. And so they hide and they scheme and they deceive. And why? Because his or her greatest value is themselves. And it shows that they're really just worshipers themselves. And my point is this, is that we can, we can look, we should look at Herod and we shouldn't just see a deranged man that's unlike us. We should actually see a man who is very much like us in many ways because he was a man who was a self-worshipper. And so what about you? So I want you, as we think through Herod, I want you just to think through, how, do, how are we like Herod? When we fear, when we sinfully fear, how do we scheme? How do we sin? What does it reveal about who we truly worship? So imagine the shock and the fear that took place when these king makers come into town. The Bible says in verse 3, if you look at it, that King Herod was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Now, when you look at these magi, you think of these magi, don't picture three guys coming in on camels, okay? That traditionally people have said to the centuries that there was three kings that, you know, and they usually are... Um, have camels there that picture that. And that probably comes because of the three gifts. And there's actually a church, a Catholic church in Germany that claims to have the bones of these men. You can actually go see a golden shrine that has these bones inside. And it's all a bunch of superstition and nonsense. These actually were, were a, a tribe from Persia that were actually very wealthy. I mean, they might've come in on camels. They might've come in on Persian horses, right? I mean, if they were wealthy then they probably came in with style. And, and if they're going to cause a stir, there's probably going to be more than just three of them. You know, three guys coming into town here probably wouldn't be a big deal. Maybe if like an, a ship from China pulls up to, to the bay, that might be kind of scary for us, right? And, that, and that's what these, these individuals in Jerusalem faced. They were, they were troubled. They were fearful. Fear swept through Jerusalem. Why is this happening? Who are these magi from the Parthian Empire? What are they talking about? A king is born here. So you can see their heart of fear that schemes and self-worship. Look in verse 4. Here's what King Herod does. He assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And there's no doubt here that these men are looking for the promised Messiah. I mean, Herod has assembled all the chief priests, all the experts in, in prophecy. And these two groups represent those two groups who should have welcomed the Messiah. Right? The chief priests were the ones who anoint the, the kings of Israel and say, you're the true kings of Israel. The, the scribes are the ones who were entrusted with the scriptures. They're the ones who should have recognized the times of the signs and said, signs of the time and said, Jesus is this Messiah. But instead, they listen to Herod, but they do nothing. And I think they're part of this group here where they, they were all, Jerusalem was all troubled together. Here they are, a part of this group that, that is fearful as well. And, and probably not necessarily of the baby Jesus, right? And, and maybe not even necessarily even of the Magi. Probably they're more afraid of Herod. Like, what's he going to do? He's crazy. You know, maybe he's going to start just killing people. And so these chief priests and scribe, scribes, they, they scheme in self-preservation. Again, they face uncertainty. So what do they do? They do nothing about this. What's sad is that of all people, of all people in Jerusalem, these are the men who should have faith and should have inquired because they had the scriptures. And so, verse 4, the end of verse 4 says, if we look at it with me, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. 
And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Scribes and the chief priests here, they quote two Old Testament passages, and I got behind myself here. Uh, the first passage they quote is Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Now think about this. So here are these chief priests and scribes, probably the scribes here more than the chief priests, are quoting this passage here from Micah 5, 2, which is a prophecy of the Messiah. And I'll actually read the, the whole verse here that, they, that they, part, they, they quote part of the verse, but I'll read the whole verse. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth, listen, from me, so this Messiah is coming from God, one who is to be ruler or Messiah in Israel, whose coming forth is from old. So think about it. He's going to be born, but he's going to be old. From ancient of days. So what is this? Who is this? This is someone who has lived before he's born. Of course, the only person that could ever be that is God, because God has never had a beginning, never have an ending. He's is, he was, is, and is to come. And so they should have recognized, as they saw this, they should recognize there was something special happening here. In fact, in verse number, the end of verse 5, it says, From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And this, this actually represents how the Old Testament describes what the Messiah will be like. He'll be like a shepherd who will shepherd the people of Israel. And there's a couple of texts that we look, could look at for that. It's not necessarily a direct quote of any Old Testament passage. But really a summary of here's what the Messiah would do. He'd be a shepherd of people, the people of Israel. But again, instead of faith in God's word, these men and Herod choose to fear. And notice the continual scheming by Herod. Look at verse 7. And Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And so you see this. You see this secrecy. You see this, this behind-the-scenes working of things. Herod's heart is is fearful, so he schemes, he plots, he's trying to fix it to go his way, which is kind of funny to think about because he's actually going against the sovereign God. Like, that's actually not going to work. Your schemes are actually going to be a part of his plans. <laughs> so good luck for that. But actually, it's interesting, just as a point of application, I think that, that this, what he does here, is actually commonly seen in people who are driven by fear. If you're a person driven by fear you you can scheme and usually it looks like secret conversations and and maybe complaining about this person or that or or working behind the scenes to get it to be your way and trying to manipulate situations i mean it's kind of like what politics is right is not the definition of politics not really but you kind of see that in our society but we see it even in our own lives usually it's mixed with with subtle hints of deception in lives and so and so why do they do that why does herod do that well look at verse eight And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. So he did this because he wanted to worship Jesus. Is that what it says? No. He's lying right there. Who was Herod truly worshiping at this point? Himself. When you hear the word worship, sometimes maybe you think of, you know, some 
uh, pagan culture that are worshiping an idol, or maybe you think of Christian culture where we come to church and we sing and, and that kind of thing. And that, and that is worship in some sense, but, but worship actually means showing great value or worth to something that you think deserves it. It, it means showing great value or worth to something you think deserves it. And who is the person that you think deserves that great value? Many times it's yourself, isn't it? And so who did Herod value the most? It was himself. And that's why we can say he's a self-worshipper. Herod sat on the throne of Jerusalem, but he also sat on the throne of his own heart. And we must recognize that our hearts are too many times like Herod's. And when, our, when we sit on the throne of our own hearts and rule our hearts as, as the Lord and King of our own hearts, our lives will be filled with fear and we will scheme and we will have anger and lies and deception and so on. And that's why Christ came into the world, friends. He came to dethrone self from your heart to save you from your sin, to change your heart with his forgiveness and his grace so he can make you into a Christ worshiper and change you and your person. And that starts with faith, going to the Lord in faith. And so that's our next point there. The heart of faith delights in Christ worship. In the midst of uncertainty, notice the heart of faith of the Magi. They, they delight in the Lord and worship of Jesus Christ. The Magi came from far away. The star appeared, but then it went away. So they didn't know necessarily what they were getting themselves into when they came into town. In fact, the, the text seems to indicate that they were surprised that people didn't know about this king that was born. And so there's uncertainty for them too, but they're moving forward by faith in the Lord. And listen to verse number nine, as they, they listened to his report after listening to the king, the Bible says they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them, uh, I'm sorry, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And there's been articles, there's been movies written about this star. What was the star like? You know, was it a natural phenomenon? Was it supernatural some think it's a comet. Some suggest that it's a supernova. Some think planets lined up and all that. I think actually the text is pretty clear that it's supernatural. It's a supernatural event. And I'll just give you a couple of reasons in case you watch those movies and think, oh, maybe it was one of those things that happened. And three things that I put up here, you can write them down or just read them. The star of Bethlehem appeared only for the Magi and then went away. So that's one thing to think about. And then the next thing is, Celestial bodies normally move from east to west due to the you know, Earth's rotation. Look that up on the internet. But they usually don't travel south. And so this star actually uh, led them south to Bethlehem. Third, the star moved with them, led them directly to the place where Joseph and Mary were staying, and it stopped overhead. So, yeah, all that seems to indicate that's probably a supernatural event right there. And so... So what was this supernatural star? What was this event? Well, I believe it was a supernatural sign from God in the form of a light. Of course, that's what a star is, right? It's a big ball of fire. 
And so I believe what they saw was some form of light. Maybe it was fire. Maybe it was, looked like a star from a distance, but it was some kind of light. And the light appeared to show them where God in the flesh was going to be born. So it represented the presence of God in a certain place. Then the light led them to the place where Jesus actually was. So it actually gave them direction. Then the light rested over that place and showed them that the presence of God was there. Now, what does that sound like? You know what that sounds like? It sounds like, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory that Israel saw. And the, the light of the Shekinah glory of God confirmed to Israel that God was with them. The light of the Shekinah glory led them out of Egypt to the land of promise. The light of Shekinah glory rested above the tabernacle. So they were all in their tents around the tabernacle. And at night, they could look up as Israel and they could see the Shekinah light, the glory of God. And actually, interesting enough, Shekinah, you know what it means? He dwells. God dwells with us. What does Emmanuel mean? God dwells with us. So it makes sense in that God would lead them to, to the presence of himself with the Shekinah glory. And actually that Shekinah light would rest over their house and, and represent that God was present there. And you know what's really interesting? Is that the people of Israel didn't see it. But here are these Gentiles from the east. God revealed it to them. So look at verse number nine. The Bible says, And behold... The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And so these magi followed the Shekinah light of God and notice how they respond in verse 10. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And all the anticipation from, from Daniel through whatever process they went to to receive this revelation from God, led up to this, that, that the light of God appeared, was present before them, and they believed, and they believed the message that they had heard. And notice their hearts of faith that, that rejoiced in worship to Christ. In verse 10, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Now, what does that look like? I mean, what do, you, what do you think that looked like for them to see that star and recognize the Messiah is here? Like the one we've all been waiting for that was promised from long time ago. One who is God himself dwelling in that house in the form of a baby. What did that look like? I think it probably looks like more exciting than your football team winning, right? Hopefully. I, uh, a couple weeks ago, um, got ice cream for my children and my youngest five-year-old, you know, uh, we got him some ice cream and you know, he's like, this is the best ever, right? I kind of think that this is the joy that was in their heart. It was like, this is awesome. I can't believe this has come to pass. And that is the joy of the Lord delighting in the fact that the King has come and look at verse 11. Look at how they respond as well. And going into the house, I mean, just picture this. Here are these, this group of, of men, these magi, and they come. And how, how do they fit in the house? Who knows? But they go into the house. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. I mean, how much did these magi know about this baby? So, you know, you know the song, Mary, Did You Know? Someone should write, Magi, what did you know? Don't you wonder that? When you look at that, you're like, 
they, they actually fell down and worshipped this, this baby there. So if you could come up with the words for that, we'll, we'll sing it in church sometime, okay? But they knew enough to have faith in the Lord that responded in delight in the worship of Jesus Christ. They go into this house, they fall down, and they submit themselves, think about it, to a baby, to a baby, and actually worshiped this baby. So they don't just believe his baby's a king, they actually believe he is deity, that he's God. And from the Magi, we see in the midst of uncertainty, this heart of faith that, that delights in, in Christ's worship. And so as, as I was thinking about this, what, what does that look like for us? What does it look like for us to have this heart, this heart of faith like, like the Magi did? And I think first it means we must first submit to Christ as our king. That's what Romans says. Romans 10, see if I have it on here. Yeah, Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he's the Lord of Lord, he's the King of Kings. So, so first you must approach, must approach Jesus and say, you know what? I, I'm a self-worshipper and that's wrong. It's offensive to you. I deserve no worship. I am not God. I am not the Lord. And I, am, I should not try to be in control. So I come before you and I submit to, to you. You, Jesus, are the Lord of all. So you come to him, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In other words, Jesus, you came to this world and you lived a perfect life for me. You died in my place. You were resurrected. So I believe you're what? You're my savior. You're my Lord. You're in charge. I submit to you and you're the one who's actually able to save me. And what does God promise when we come to him in that way? He will save us. So we, we come to the Lord and trust that he is the king and he actually has the power to save us and change us. And as a child of God, as believers in here, those of us who have said that Jesus is our Lord, Jesus is our savior, we're trusting him. We must come to him and value him above all else. We must live as if it's true that he actually is the king of our hearts and of our lives. And so I was just thinking through, what, is it, what does this look like in our, in our lives? I go back to the child, you know, who's, who's afraid that his mom will see him take a snack because he knows he's not supposed to take the snack. And I would say to you, if you're a child in here and you find that fear coming up in your heart that you're going to do something wrong, I say to you, put your faith in Christ as your king not yourself. You, you need to say, I should no longer be trying to rule my life, but I need to trust the Lord is the ruler of my life and submit to him as my Lord and Savior and actually believe that, that following him, obeying him is actually more delightful and more enjoyable than doing what I want to do. So you don't sneak the snack, but you obey your mom. Why? Because Jesus is the one you worship. And so you go to Jesus for help. And you delight in doing his will. Or I think about the young person who, who wants people to like her. And so she's, she's afraid that people are going to have a negative opinion on her. So she goes out and she schemes so people can like her more because she worships herself. And I would say to that person that you need to come to Jesus and recognize he is the king of your life. He is the Lord. And actually, his opinion matters and other people's opinion doesn't matter. Like his opinion matters more than anything else. And so you, you come to him. You're his child. And if you're a Christian, he loves you. The Bible says you're actually, as a child of God, you're accepted in the beloved. 
not because of what you do, but because Jesus has, has given his righteousness to you. He's saved you. He's, re, he's justified you. So you don't accept, uh, uh, you don't um, seek the acceptance of others and their opinions to, to give you v- uh, value in this world. You choose to cast your cares upon Jesus and you choose to find your value in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you say, you're my king. I worship you. And life is not about the worship of me. Or I think about that spouse who's tempted to be fearful and have, make secret decisions because they really want to protect themselves and do what they want to do. And I would say for you to, to repent of that, to come to the Lord and confess that to him, to seek him by faith and trust that Christ is the one who rules your heart. And actually, he's the one who should be ruling your marriage. And, and when Christ rules your heart and your marriage, actually your life and your mind changes because you think to yourself, no longer do I, should I keep things secret, but actually I should, I should be open with my spouse. Actually, I should approach this marriage as one who wants to serve my spouse. And worshiping Christ means that my marriage is not about me and her fulfilling me and her worshiping me. It's actually about us worshiping him and me serving her or him and trusting he is our king. And, and, and I can, we could go through scenario for scenario, right? My point is this, is we should look at this and say, how does this apply to me? Your, your fear can result in scheming, which reveals that you are a self-worshipper. So we should turn in faith to Christ as our Savior and as our King and delight in valuing Him above all else. And, and notice the, the worship in verse number, verse number 11. Notice their worship included gifts. They gave from the joy of their heart. They gave in joy. Then opening their treasures, they offered Him gifts of of gold and frankincense and of myrrh. And these gifts were gifts given to a king and recognized that he was worthy and he was the Messiah. And I think also just a way for them to worship him. And in verse number 12, we also see their delight in the worship of Christ and their response to God's warning. Verse 12, in being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And as we, as we finished here, I just, you look at that last sentence there, and what's interesting is it actually doesn't say that they received the dream. They might have. It, it could have been. In the next verse, Joseph was the one who received a dream, and Joseph told them. But either way, they believed God. They believed God's revelation to them, to him, and they followed the Lord in obedience. Well, we're going into the Christmas week here, and there might be some uncertainties you face this week. And and the question is, will you respond in fear, which will lead to scheming and trying to get your own way, which reveals really your heart of worship, or will you turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe you're in here today and you're without Christ. In other words, he is not the Lord of your life. He's not your savior because you're not truly trusting him. You're just living for yourself. I encourage you today, call for you today, plead with you in the name of Christ to turn to him. Submit to him as your king, as your savior, and experience the joy and delight of worshiping God and following him. Would you bow your hearts and your heads with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? As we enter into Christmas, it's a great time for us to worship the Lord. It's a great time for us to go to the Lord in prayer. Let me encourage you this week, O Christian, To not just have a fun week with family. Get your Bible out. 
spend time with the Lord, and come to him in prayer. Let's pray to him ourselves. God, we come. Jesus, we come recognizing that you, Jesus, are the king of kings and Lord of lords. You are that bright and morning star. And you truly, truly do deserve our worship. You are God, and we are not. And oh, how confused and how blinded and deceived we can be when we, when we rule our lives as our own kings, when we seek, you, seek our life and, and righteousness by being our own saviors, and we go our own way and just, it leads to destruction emptiness, and eventually death. But God, you are so kind and merciful to us to extend your loving kindness and your mercy to change us so we can come submit before you as our king and God so lovingly have you work as our savior to forgive us, to cleanse us, to promise us that we are your children. We're forever held by Christ for Christ, for eternity. So I I pray for us as a church in here. I pray this week will be a a week of worship of Christ. And may it not just be those times that we get alone with you, but may we worship Christ in our relationships. May we worship Christ in our our marriages, um, in our families, and in our time with family, in our entertainment. May our life be about you. Christ, we value you above all else. So God, give us that direction, that spirit of God, give us that illumination of your word and lead us by your kindness and your mercy into the direction you'd have us go in Christ's likeness. I just think there's probably people in here and and people that are going to come to our life this next week who don't know you. And so our prayer is, as as I think about some people even right now in my mind, I, I pray for our people as I know they're probably thinking of people as well. We, we think of those people and we ask God, will you please show them that this Christmas is about Jesus? And I pray their heart will submit to you. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.